Hey, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you all had a wonderful week this week, and I hope you all have a great weekend. I am very excited today. I have not one, but two guests with me who I think, in my opinion, they are just total badasses. My first guest is a forensic psychologist who has been called on as a consultant and expert witness. She also hosts a YouTube channel called Rise Psychology, where she covers a multitude of mental health issues and was featured in Lights, Camera, Murder, Scream, Dr. Lena Haji. And my second guest is a consultant and commentator on Court TV and the Law and Crime Trial Network, where he recently commented on the Alex Murdoch case. He is also an adjunct professor at A&M in San Antonio, Dr. John Delator. Hi, everybody. Welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Super excited. I'm also very excited. So my first question for both of you is, you know, kind of what I really just ask everyone when I first interview them is like kind of what was the reason or maybe the moment that made you decide, yeah, I want to become a forensic psychologist. And also, what was that journey like? Um, well, I guess I'll go first. I, I knew that I wanted to be a psychologist at age nine. Um because I had my own um, struggles as a child. And I remember kind of being bounced around from doctor to doctor, neurologist, pediatrician, cardiologist. I had some somatic symptoms that they couldn't figure out. And then finally, uh, my parents took me to a psychologist. And I remember feeling like I had finally been asked the questions that no other doctor had asked. Um, and it was very um, comforting. I didn't feel so alone. I know that sounds like such a sad story, but I remember leaving that office and asking my mother, what was that doctor? I was, and my mother said, oh, that was a psychologist. And I was like, so that's what I'm going to do. And then in college, I kind of took a dumbed down, if you will, forensic psychology course called psychology and the law. And this, um, like Barbie looking gorgeous, hot blonde walks in and she starts talking about how she worked with psychopaths and serial killers and she works with sex offenders and you know in my mind I had always thought that was done by old white males I don't know there was not much representation and um yeah between that and watching Silence of the Lambs and deciding I needed to be Clarice I I, I was sold uh that was that's how that's how I decided that <laughs> I don't know how about <laughs> John <laughs> Uh, yeah, mine, I don't think was as dramatic as that. Um, so in college, my major was aeronautical engineering. Um, and then I took a general psych course as you know, one does in college. And one of the interesting aspects was that the professor had an old timey lie detector machine. So he asked for volunteers, I was able to volunteer. Uh, and so he taught us what the actual polygraph was designed to do, how to read the polygraph, you know, really basic. I'm not a polygrapher. Um, and and then how to beat it. Right. What kinds of what kinds of techniques could you do uh, to, to beat a polygraph? And so from there on, I was like, I'm going to take as many as I as many classes as I could. Uh, entry into forensics, though, was a little bit I, I mean, I did as as much as I could in everything else before I kind of entered into forensics. And I think that's kind of 
when people ask me like how do i break into forensics i'll tell them do something else like get those clinical skills that you need first and then you can always come back to this because there's nothing all that unique about forensic psychology <laughs> and it always like you know you there's the shows like criminal minds you know you got bd wong on yeah. um law and order svu the forensic psychologist you know and it makes it seem more maybe more than what it is like it just like the you would think for schooling wise it would be way more intense because the way that they make it seem yeah. is that your patients are these serial killers or just you know criminals in general yeah you know i think a lot of people get confused because the individuals in the bau so the fbi does have five different bau units but they're not all finding serial killers and usually those are just highly qualified agents uh, who've done a lot of training. I mean, yes, there are psychologists involved, but they're generally doing analytical work. They're not, but there's no such thing as a profiler is, is what I'm saying. And uh, Wong, I, he is a unique, he is a unique character in that what he actually is, is a police psychologist. And so mm -hmm. a lot of law enforcement agencies have a psychologist on staff that is able to help them sort of break through the the behavior of why a crime committed so again, not a not, not a profiler, but certainly a police psychologist, a little bit less than, or a little bit different than a forensic psychologist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I had um I had two FBI profiler, I guess I don't know if they call them that anymore, but they were they were FBI profilers for the behavior analysis unit at um, John Jay College of Criminal Justice, where I did my master's, and. Um, Dr. De La Torre is right. It was much more, actually one of them consulted on criminal minds and said that even though it's Hollywoodified, it's not that far-fetched in terms of how they take information and then come up with a profile, so to speak. But again, super Hollywoodified. But um, yeah, John is right. It's more about data collection and data analysis and, and it's much more glamorous on TV. Um, but yeah, Dr. Wong is a forensic psychiatrist, actually, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's a police site. Yeah. Very interesting. One of my favorites, I have to say. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's a good character. He is. Yeah. He's likable, yeah, for sure. If, if he gets killed off, I'm done. I think that will be it. I will be done with SVM. <laughs> J.K. Simmons, I can't remember his name, but J.K. Simmons had a, had a good sort of police yes. counselor character throughout the different iterations of Law and Order that I was always fun with. I can't remember his name, right mm -hmm. now, but yeah. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, I remember him too. He was really good. I liked him, but yeah, I can't remember the character's name either. Someone out there is probably screaming, like I yeah, know the. How could, like how could you how not could know? You I not mean, know. it's been it's it been thousands of hours of Law and Order. Like, I don't recall <laughs> all of them. So so right. yeah, I'll, I'll take that hit. Now, aside from kind of what we were talking about, what would would you say that that is more of the like a big misconception behind forensic psychology or would you think or is there something else that you think is like a bigger misconception that people would be shocked to hear? Well, I would say profiling is completely uh, its own thing. So when people say think forensic psychologist, I think they they I think a lot of times they automatically think profiler. Mm -hmm. I don't do any of that and I don't think Dr. De La Torre does any of that because it's very very separate like it's much more again data analysis data collection and so 
profiling is its own thing. And I think that's a big misconception. People automatically think forensic psychologist, you're a profile. The other mistake I hear is that when people hear the word forensic, they automatically think ballistics and blood and dead bodies and like CSI stuff. Mm -hmm. That's forensic science. That's also completely separate. Those are the two biggest misconceptions I see. Um, Yeah. You know, for me, it's, it's this idea that if you do forensic work, right, if you do forensic psychology work, that it's only criminal related. And it's not, I mean, forensics is, it's not even really its own branch. I mean, yes, it has its own sort of specialty certification, but the truth is, is that all you're doing is taking psychology skills and applying it to the law. So you can be a forensic therapist, right? So these individuals would be treating criminals or something like that. So there's so many different ways that you could enter into the forensic, the quote unquote forensic arena that don't necessarily require you to be an evaluator, right? And I, Dr. Haji and I are, are basically evaluators and uh, we do, I do various kinds of evaluating, but I don't, there are other ways in which someone can be a forensic psychologist that isn't what people think that it is. Yeah, and also I think there's a, there's a move to separate correctional psychology from forensic psychology. Um, so, for example, I worked in prisons for a long time, but that was not doing forensic psychology work in the classic sense. I wasn't taking clinical information to inform the legal system. I was a psychologist in prison. So, mm-hmm. uh, like Dr. De La Torre said, it was applying clinical knowledge to treat inmates and to assess inmates and to manage inmates, so to speak. So um, correctional psychology is also a little different than forensic psychology. And I think people mix those up a lot too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I mean, and again, it doesn't help that Hollywood makes it look like all of these different branches of psychology are just this one, you know, because it makes for more exciting TV and movies, you know? Yeah. Right. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and order today. Now, both of you commentate, um, like I said, Dr. Haji, you've done the most recent one that's like for Scream. That's also Danny Rowling, which I think is awesome. Um, and like I said, Dr. De La Torre, you also commentate for Court TV and uh, Long Crime Trial Network. What is your process like 
preparing for those? I'll let Dr. De La Torre answer that because this is essentially his career. <laughs> so go for it. Uh, so uh, we were talking off camera uh, that I don't really watch all that much true crime in terms of like television shows and documentaries and stuff like that. But I do actually watch a ton of trials. So I'll have the YouTube going. So courts here in Texas, they live stream trials all the time. So I'll watch them, you know, in a lot of these places, I'm going to be doing, you know, work in these jurisdictions. So I need to know who these, you know, lawyers are, who the judges are and all that stuff. So I'll watch court cases all the time. Um, when I get booked for a television show or something like that, or, or, or a network where I know I'm going to be commenting live on air, they send me a rundown of the whatever has previously gone on. So they give me like some sort of you know, nuggets uh, as to the primary things that have happened previously, but I haven't watched it from before, but uh, when we're on live, anything can happen. And so I'm, uh, I have to be flexible enough to be able to, to comment on whatever it is that's going on right as it happens. So I, I never know what question I'm going to be asked until I'm asked it. Yeah, and I don't have much experience commentating. I mean, that to be special was a kind of a one-off. Um, I mean, I've been asked to kind of talk about famous serial killers or things like that. So my process is very different because John, John's is much more legal oriented and mine is more like true crime fan. <laughs> like, why would this guy, is was this guy a psychopath? And what was, you know, um, and again, you know, we always kind of have to give a disclaimer, like I've never evaluated this person or this person is dead. Danny Rollins is dead. And they gave me a whole bunch of prep about, um, you know, I met with the cops who were originally on the case. I mm -hmm. met with the prosecutor who was originally on the case. Um, so they gave me insight into what that, what that era was like. This was in the seventies. Um, and then I just formulated kind of a hypo hypothetical, what was going on with this guy, uh, what his traumatic childhood and how that may have impacted his turning into a psychopath kind of deal. So mine was a lot far removed. <laughs> gotcha. Now it is seen in most, again, most crime shows. I know I keep referencing that, but sometimes forensic psychologists like yourselves are called in to be expert witnesses. And I think both of you have um, expertise or, you know, experience with that area. What is that like specifically to testify in court? And how do you like remain unbiased if you can at all? Um, well, for me, I think um, remaining unbiased, it comes with um, it comes with practice. But really, if you're doing your job as a clinical psychologist, your goal is to always be as objective as possible, whether it's in a clinical context or a forensic context. Um, and I'm, you know, we're human. So if somebody has an egregious crime, pedophilia, or, you know, involving children or elderly, any kind of heinous crime, as a human, you're going to have a, a reaction, I think. Um, but as long as you're aware of that reaction, and you keep it in a in a in check, and you utilize it to inform, you know, yourself clinically or forensically, then you're doing a good job. Um, as far as testifying, I think the process is different in different states. In Florida, you do have to take a like a two-day certification with Dr. Randy Otto, who's kind of a forensic guru here in Florida, actually in the forensic world. And then once you're on the stand, they have to, the judge and the attorneys have to qualify you. 
um, as an expert witness. So they go through your training, your education, your background, any kind of certifications you have. And then if both of the lawyers and the judge agree, you're an expert witness, and then you're allowed to give your clinical opinion um, on whatever case is 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 going on. I don't know if it's different in Texas, John. Uh, yeah, it is. I don't have to. I, no one trains me to do what I do. I just do what I do. Um, so yeah, going so going back to being uh, biased or unbiased, I, I think you know. Like Dr. Haji said, there's no there's no actual way to be unbiased. Um, what you have to do is, is kind of mitigate where those biases are, and, and it starts in your report, right? So, uh, as, so long as you're putting in in my mind at least, so long as you're putting why uh, the evidence might point to something different, so long as you're giving alternatives and then explaining away why those alternatives aren't the most likely issue at play, then I think you're doing a good job. Um, but that, uh, but the other thing is, is that, you know, that's really just for individuals who are uh, retained by the court. If you're retained by a side, more than likely you're going to align yourself with the side that retains you. So in that sense, there's, there, it, it would be very difficult to uh, remain unbiased. And in some ways you, you kind of have to have that sort of constant awareness of, of what you're telling the side that's retaining you. Are you giving them all of the data or are you only telling them what you think benefits the case? So long as you're telling them all of the data, then I think you're doing a good job. Uh, but when it comes to testifying, it's really different per court, right? So it, it, I, I've never had a bad experience in criminal cases, right? It, 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 those seem to go fairly easily in terms of uh, the process. The, the most difficult, I think, has always been in the family law cases where every single individual in that case, you know, children and all, all have an attorney. So I've been, I've been in a family law case where there was eight different attorneys all asking me different questions about what's going on. And so the sheer, the sheer volume of data that I needed to have, both at the start in terms of the evaluation, but also being able to recall when I was on the stand was just, it was far more dense. And I had to be a lot more careful in how I was presenting that information based on just the, the, the situation I find myself in. Even civil commitment. I've done civil commitment before. Uh, one case in particular, the, the defendant in the case was representing himself and I had diagnosed antisocial personality disorder. So I thought that that was going to go. I thought that was going to go off the rails relatively quickly, and it actually did not. It's 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 really been the family law cases that I think were the most anxiety provoking because of how many different people. But the truth is, is that if you've done, you know, the the right thing, if you've done what you know how to do, just fall back on that. You know, no one knows the case better than you. You know how to do. You know how to manage anxiety and stuff like that. As as a clinician, just use all of those skills. It's it's not a trick. It's not anything like that. They're just they're they just trying to do the best they can for their client and just tell the truth. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was curious about the notion of being retained by one side or the other, but again. And I'm not well versed in the law, so I wasn't sure if being by being an expert witness, you were by definition supposed to be like unbiased and just like, hey, I'm just here to present the facts kind of a thing and not necessarily. No, the only thing that's so, so there is no real such thing as a as a 
as a difference between a fact witness and an expert witness, that that distinction that doesn't exist the way that people think that it does. Mm -hmm. Really what the difference is, is that if me or Dr. Haji are, if we're designated as an expert, the only thing that it means is that we can give an opinion. And that opinion can change based on any hypothetical that we're given. Now, I don't answer hypotheticals, but if someone does, I mean, I mean, our opinion can absolutely change. So the only real difference between me as an expert and me as someone who has conducted an evaluation is that the only questions I can answer as a fact witness are the things that I saw, touched, felt, like those things that, that I physically was involved in. While an expert, I could just render an opinion based on whatever. Yeah, and I can say that I actually do prefer most of my evaluations. I'm I'm retained by the court, and I I do prefer that because when I go in, I I, I feel this is going to sound you know please don't take this out of context, but I feel more objective because I have no dog in the fight. Right. I have no dog in the fight, whether the prosecution or the witness, is he competent to stand trial? Is he not guilty by reason of insanity? When I am hired by the defense or the prosecution, and I get about 50-50, I would say, you know, you do tend to, or at least I tend to be more constantly checking myself. Am I being truthful? Am I being biased? Am I, you know, because people are messy. They're never all good or all bad. People are gray. And you, you know, mm -hmm. as, as an ethical psychologist, you have to report the gray. Um, and, and you do do it in a, in a, in a tactful clinical manner, but it's, there's always gray, if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, there's, there's always going to be an allegiance bias from the person that's sending you, like that's always going to exist. And, you know, the the lawyers are about zealously advocating for their client and so you get you can easily get wrapped up in the emotion of you know let's let's think about you know trauma here let's let's think about you know all the stuff that happened as as a kid and so you can easily get caught up in, in the emotion of it and it's certainly possible that that you know being caught up in that you start thinking about how you're going to be doing that so one thing that you know especially defense I, if i'm going to get hired uh, outside the court, then it's probably going to be by the defense. One of the things that, you know, the, in terms of prep and, and questions that I'm asked by the attorneys, um, I'm usually telling them, look, it, I can present this information in any way you want me to, but the question really lies with the trier of fact. So the judge or the jury, do they believe in what I'm saying? And that's really about my mm -hmm. credibility, that if I'm giving information that I think as a psychologist can make sense in terms of early childhood trauma or some or something like that but if it doesn't land with the jury then it then you hire you spent money on me and you didn't even need to so it's more important that we say what is accurate and what makes sense for the lay person rather than you know kind of come up with all of these different ptsd or adjustment to, like instead of coming up with a diagnosis let's just tell a story that makes sense to a jury Mm -hmm. And also, you know, you don't, you, you, you know, there, we have a term for people who are willing to comp compromise their ethics for a paycheck, hired guns. And in my opinion, you can see right through those pretty quickly. And, and you don't have to have a PhD to see right through those people. Like, like, like Dr. Delator said, the jury, you know, the judge they they, they see through hired guns, at least in my experience. So there's there's no benefit in in me doing that to compromise my reputation, my integrity, my ethics, just because 
you know, some one side hired me. Right. Now, switching gears just a little bit, what would a typical day look like for either of you, like a work day, essentially? Like, what do your work days entail? LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? If so, the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. Have you been moved by an LGBT book? film, painting, television show, or other form of media? The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the articles published in the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section. This allows people like you to share their own experiences with our readers. To learn more about submitting either to the print or the online edition of the GNLR, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org and scroll down to the bottom of the page to find a link to their writer's guidelines. If you have any questions, email stephen.hemrick at glreview.org. The GNLR can't wait to see what you have to say. And remember that they're offering an exclusive code with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So when you subscribe to the magazine, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. So that's seven issues instead of six. Again, just visit the glreview.org and click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR for your free issue. My, I don't have a typical workday. They're all over the place. Um, so typically I will, um, after I hit the gym, gym is important. Um, I might have one or two patients on telehealth um, in the morning and they might be inmates from the jail or um, I also do clinical evaluations which have nothing to do with the legal system. So people trying to figure out, am I bipolar, am I borderline? Do I meet criteria for autism? Do I have ADHD? So I'll do a couple of those either in person or uh, via telehealth or I'll go to the jail. And then typically I write reports in the afternoons or the evenings. There's a lot of writing involved. So it's not like a therapist who you typically see patient, 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 patient. You'll, I might see one or two, maybe three or four patients a week. And then it's a lot of writing and then sprinkle in there. Sometimes I have to testify. So I might testify on zoom or I, I might be at the courthouse. Sometimes I'll be at the juvenile detention center, evaluating juveniles. I also work with, um, students. I, I supervise pre-doctoral interns and post-doctoral interns. So doing that kind of stuff, revising reports, um, and some days, um, I might take a three hour nap. No, those days are not often, but <laughs> so I don't have a typical day. I don't know about Dr. Delator. Yeah, I don't have a typical day, uh, either. Um, it is, it is somewhat similar in that there are evaluation days. Um, and I can like, sometimes those evaluation days can be ex fairly lengthy just because of how long an evaluation might take, not because of the number of people that I'm seeing. Uh, but then, it, it, you know, some days are just report days where I'm not doing anything other than report writing any of those days. Uh, I'm generally on television probably about 10 times a month, 
right? Maybe a little bit more, 10 to 12 times a month. That's, that's quite a lot to be on live television. Um, I, I teach, right? So Mondays and Wednesdays uh, for hour 15 minutes, I'm, I'm teaching. So there really isn't any, and be, I, I don't see, I don't do any clinical work. Like I don't see, I don't do therapy anymore. So I don't have that, 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 that consistency. Um, so I get to structure my days, however I choose to structure them. And so that requires a lot of discipline. I don't, I very rarely go anywhere. I do most of my evaluations virtually. Um, I haven't had to testify in court lately. Usually my reports aren't contested. So I, I never have to go testify. At least I haven't in quite some time. Um, so yeah, it, it's really just picking and choosing what cases I want to work on when I want to work on them and going from there in terms of report writing. It's so interesting. And it is nice. I mean, is it nice to be able to kind of structure your day? I mean, obviously, like you said, Dr. De La Tour, you have to be very disciplined. But other than that, like, do you enjoy that type of schedule? Or would you prefer? I, it's, it's ups and it, it has its, you know, ups and downs. I think for me, I don't like anybody telling me what to do, or how <laughs> to do it. Um, so I, I, I'm apparently never going to be an expert in, in Florida if I need to go through some certification or something like that, but, uh, I, I don't like it. And so even though I think you get, you have the feeling of consistency when you have like a regular, you know, nine to five job or however, because forensic psychologists can have those kinds of jobs. It absolutely can. Um, but I like, I like having my own private practice. I like having that freedom, but with that freedom comes the understanding that, I got to be way more disciplined in how I'm structuring my day. I, I totally agree. I mean, like I said, I worked in prisons for so long and it was seven to four and it was very structured and, you know, uh, bureaucracy and administrative stuff and getting constantly frustrated at the fact that the prison system in America is a, is a mess. Uh, I did that for so long that, um, you know, but the, the, the benefit of that is at 4 p.m. you walk out the prison, you're done. Um, I agree with Dr. De La Torre that you do have to be disciplined. So, you know, I, I, I might have a, a day where I don't work eight hours or I don't set an alarm clock, which is beautiful. But the payoff is that on Saturday nights while my friends are out, I might be at home typing up reports. But I, I, I'll choose that any over, over any day because, um, you know, I don't have anybody telling me what to do, which is amazing. Private practice. Um, for me, I, I'm kind of always winging it, but knock on wood, so far it seems to be working. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think I could ever work for anyone ever again. <laughs> Once I've had a taste of this, it's like, wow, this is this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I paid my dues. I paid, definitely paid my dues. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Now, have either of you had to work with a killer or serial killer? And if so, what was that like? Obviously, we're not naming names, but, you know. I've worked uh, with many, many killers and many serial killers. Um, I think, what was it like? You know, just like any other uh, criminal, it, it, it varies greatly. You know, murderers or serial killers don't aren't one, one type of person. 
there are, there are, there are some that were narcissistic. There were some that were psychopathic. There were some that were very personable. There were some that were, had problems with drugs. There were some that were seriously mentally ill, just like any other human, you know, a, a killer or a serial killer can range. Um, there were some that were, uh, had cognitive difficulties or low IQ. There were some that had trauma history. So just like any other human, I think, um, you had some killers that, uh, were high ranking gang members and some killers that were killing in self-defense. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's a range. So I really can't say that it's what it's like to work with a killer because you have to individualize it just like anything else in psychology. Yeah, I'm going to echo all of that, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring it back to, it's also about how you feel sort of when you're interacting with them, because um, it's important to understand that when we're gathering data, a lot of the data that we should be gathering that I think a lot of times we kind of neglect is how we felt interacting with that individual. That is certainly possible that some of these individuals that have committed the similar kinds of crimes, you feel different when you're interacting with them. And how you're feeling when you're interacting with them has a lot to do with that person, obviously, but also how are you? Right? How how are you, how are you in your development when it comes to an evaluator? How are you in, in your development when it comes to being able to empathize? Which is one of the curious things that I think a lot of people don't understand. Which is sometimes you have to walk into the delusions, right? And I'm going to call it a delusion because, and I'm not saying that they have a delusional disorder. What I'm saying is that the justification of why these individuals have done the crime that they've done, right? may require mm -hmm. you to, to put aside a lot of your own social mores, right? A lot of your own things that you find to be appropriate. Uh, you know, I primarily do um, evaluations with sexually violent persons. And so when I'm talking to these individuals about why they did what they did, they'll say things like, I've, I've, I've heard them say, well, this five-year-old girl was, you know, flirting with me. And so I have to be able to walk into that delusion because the last thing that I need is this person to be, to put up a wall and not tell me the information that I need. And so I'll walk into that delusional thinking and say, you know, I can see how, you know, the way that she's talking to you and like, I have to walk into that and you, you, you feel gross doing it, but I think it's important to be able to empathize with where that person is coming from and seeing it as a reality that they have, even though it clearly is not reality, but it's something that it's how they see the world. And so how you feel, I think, is a definite sort of indicator that uh, of the type of individual that you're interacting with. I think like even in my own research, like what you both were saying about how um, especially Dr. Haji about how like they are, you know, obviously they're human beings and they're, it's not that killers are one type of people. They are a multitude. And, you know, I think everyone or most people have this misconception that, you know, you know exactly who a killer is when they walk into a room, you just feel it kind of a thing. And sure, maybe some people do, you know, are maybe a little more sensitive to the energy you know, that they're putting out. But overall, though, you know, it's not so it's not like that necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I had one inmate who was only serving three years for murder because he murdered his uh, neighbor who had repeatedly raped his teenage daughter. So 
the way that, you know, countertransference or whatever you want to call it, the way you feel towards an inmate gives you a lot of information. And that information, you know, the way that you feel about this person provides insight into how this person relates to the rest of the world. So this particular guy was a hero in the, in the prison, you know, oh, you killed your daughter's rapist. Like you're, and, and, and he happened to be like a, a guy who had never even had a parking ticket. He had no criminal history, had no mental health, you know? So he was like, the a, a walking good citizen who then decided to avenge the guy who committed crimes against his daughter. So of course, uh, you know, understandably so, a lot of people revered him and thought he's a hero and he's a good guy. Um, whereas if you have a killer who is just kind of, I, I don't know, a Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, psychopathic pleasure seeking kind of guy, you're gonna feel very differently. So again, always having to individualize is, is, is pretty key. You can't just lump people together. All right. Well, this is the time where if you're not a subscriber too bad, if you are though, congratulations. Cause now we're getting into what I've now named diagnosed that killer. So no names. Um, but I will say all of these people were arrested and, you know, convicted of the crimes that they committed and actually all but one are dead. So just a little heads up. So thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Lena Haji and Dr. John DeLatour. They were just incredible. I absolutely loved interviewing them. If you would like to see the interview and if you would like to catch the game that we played, Go to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and become a subscriber. Also, don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on social media, on Instagram and TikTok. I'm at True Crime and Academia. And on Twitter, it is at TC in Academia. I hope you all have a great weekend. And until next week, I will see you later. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an enthralling interview because I want you all to know that we are sponsored by Broadview Press. And if you don't know, Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher who publishes books covering topics like English studies, writing, philosophy, history, gender studies. And every season on the podcast, I interview one of the Broadview Press authors. So for the fall, we had Ann Stevens on to talk about literary theory and criticism. She played a Wizard of Oz literary game with us. She talked about why Bridgerton actually involves literary theory. So does Fifty Shades of Grey. Who knew? Um, and also, we just had on Jeffrey Weinstock, who wrote the first ever pop culture analysis book. So, you know, I am all things a lover of pop culture, especially my Hollywood topics, Real Housewives, the list goes on and on. And he also wrote the book called The Mad Scientist's Guide to Composition, where he's writing a book teaching students about how to write rhetorical strategies, but it's all around this metaphor of being in the mad scientist laboratory, because as you'll learn when you hear our episode with Jeffrey, he is a gothic and horror fanatic. And I mean that in all the best ways possible. So you don't want to miss Broadview Press's exclusive discount 
because you're listening to the podcast, all of you get an automatic 20% off. Use the code IvoryTower for 20% off site-wide on all of their books. So our in our show notes, we have a link to Broadview Press. Make sure you click the link, put in Ivory Tower, and you're going to get 20% off your order. So enjoy your reading, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I really hope you follow us on social media because that's where you get to see all of the exciting video clips, teasers, and humorous moments. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on our Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. I hope you all are following the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe and become a member for only $5. You get all of our interviews and episodes ad-free. You also get to watch the video interviews. You get to see my lovely face and the guest's lovely face. And you get access to all the bonus episodes. So Dr. Jake Newsom talking about the history of the pink triangle, Zach Topping talking about being an army vet and what that meant when he wrote a war novel and a dystopian novel. You get to hear Gregory Maguire's breaking news about the Wicked movie musical, Jesse Green talking about Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein and what did Stephen Sondheim actually think about Rogers and Hammerstein. So head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Please, please provide me an iced coffee. I would love it because I need to stay up to do all these edits. So yeah, see you all in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. And here is Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia. Hi, everyone. I am Mary DePippi. As Andrew said, I am the host of True Crime and Academia. True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 7.30. Now, to find all things True Crime and Academia... You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia or on Twitter at TC and Academia because, well, they hate it when you have too many characters. Like I said, True Crime and Academia airs on Fridays at 7.30. But if you are a subscriber, you get a bonus episode. That's right. A whole episode just to yourselves that no one else gets to hear. Like... I do a deep dive on the case of JonBenet Ramsey. I deep dive Casey Anthony. We talk about the history of the lobotomy. And most recently, we talked about the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. So if you want to access all of that extra wonderful content, go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And like Andrew said, if you could just please buy us a nice coffee, that would that would be great. That would be really, really yes. great. It would be great. We appreciate it. We also interact with all of you on Patreon. So ask us your insightful questions. We will answer them for you. And we want to thank our spring 23 interns, Andrea, Caitlin, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to see you all back again in the ivory tower boiler room. Happy winter, everyone.